everybody, and welcome back to this week's episode of Aligning America. I'm your host, Vincent Miller, and let's get right into the thick of things. Uh, our first topic today is going to be the Amy Coney Barrett nominations. Now, as of this recording, we are nine days out from the election, which means we have nine days left for this uh, nomination process to proceed and 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 culminate because they're now under under real duress. They they truly do have to cram this thing through. And we're seeing the Senate Republicans do just that. Uh, you can equivocate it to Garland all you want, but regardless of the double standards, it's going to happen. We saw uh, the filibuster end with an overwhelming, it was a 51 to 48 vote. We saw two Republicans cross party lines to vote no. Uh, of course, it's a Republican held Senate, but of course, the Democrats knew they weren't going to win this fight, and so much so that Kamala Harris didn't even bother breaking from the campaign trail to go and vote. She was she was absent for the voting. Uh, this, you know, 51-48 was not a surprise. They're outnumbered from the start, and of course, unless you saw at least three Republican senators switch sides, you're not going to have the votes necessary to you know, disallow it. So the Democrats have really... None, little to no options left. We've seen them. They've they've come out to state they're going to try a di- digital filibuster. We'll see how well that goes. Um, but honest, quite honestly, having finished this vote to start the confirmation to, to to start the final vote, I don't see any way that they're actually going to be able to pull it off. It looks like the Republicans have this one in the bag. And even with the cross party switches, both of those were motivated for different reasons. First, we saw Senator Murkowski from Alaska. She went to defend her principle, quote-unquote, though she will be voting uh, on principle for the justice. What she means by this and what, what that all comes to culminate into is she is voting against the process. She voted no on this latest vote, but when it will come to the confirmation as a justice, she will vote yes because she does believe that she will be able to perform her duties well. Though, of course, not everyone has such noble intentions. Not everyone is about principle. She has a safe seat, and there's no way she'd lose in Alaska, especially not against her, her non-existent opponent. So I don't think she's going to tarnish her reputation uh, so much so that in, in a few years when she's up for re-election that she'd lose. I think she's she's definitely fine in making her own decisions, and quite frankly, that's how they should vote. They should vote on conscience, but that's not what they're going to do. They're going to think about these things politically and then go through with them. And that's how you end up with cases like Senator Collins from Maine. Of course, she is not doing so well in the polls. She stuck herself way too close to Trump in a state that is not necessarily... It is not. It is a purple state. And what, what we need to realize is that she's going to make her choices purely on political calculations. Because what she tried to do, the gamble with Trump, did not pay off. Obviously, he is not viewed favorably by the large majority of the population. Had he had a wonderful first term, perhaps she would, you know, she would have made the right call. But now, looking back on that decision, she and I'm sure her aides have realized that was not the right thing to do. So now she's trying to backpedal. She's voting no in an effort to say, this is unlawful. The Democrats should not be doing this. And of course, this is just a bid for bipartisan appeal. This is just a bid to make sure that she can retain her seat when she's some seven points underwater in the polls. It doesn't look like she'll be able to hold on to her seat. And quite frankly, with uh, you know political flip-flopping like that, I can see why. And I think the people of Maine can see why. And I think that's, that's how it should be. Um, principles are important. Integrity is important. Sticking to what the people, your constituents desire, that's what's important. So yes, while this may be the right decision, the vote against this because the precedent is horrible, 
it, it doesn't make it a, the right decision. It doesn't make her the right person to hold that office. And I think that's what the people of Manor are starting to realize. And I think that's what is, is shown and represented in this very important upcoming election. And I think there's a lot to be said for this upcoming election when it comes to dishonest politicians and their reckoning day. And of course, as we have touched on before, Senator Graham, another politician who has flip-flopped on this very subject, though in the wrong way, uh, against precedent, is facing a very, very, very difficult uh, incumbent election. He does not look good right now. He's being outspent four to one against Jamie Harrison, very popular nationally speaking. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to win, but the polls do show that he's slowly, very slowly gaining an advantage. And while it is a statistical tie, and it has been for nearly in the entire race, it looks bad for Graham. And it may say something about the changing demographics, the voter demographics, or maybe the polls are wrong and Jamie will lose by a landslide. We'll have to see. But it does show that this year, there could be some massive changes. And I know we've previously touched on that. It's going to be a close election, and it, it's we're, we're days away. And it's, it's hard to realize that, but we are so close to what could be the changing of not a color guard, but an entire ocean. We could be going from the Pacific to the Atlantic. It'll be warmer and nicer, maybe. But... We're looking at truly, I mean, these are age-old politicians. Uh, Senator Collins and, and Lindsey Graham have both been nationally uh, outspoken Republicans. I mean, these are national high-profile Republicans, and if they lose their seats over what is perceived either inaction or ineptitude, this could be a, a watershed moment for coming politicians, and I think that's great. I think that's what we need to see. We need to see incumbents being challenged. We need to, and this is all across the board. That's why I still believe that I, I, I want to see Shahid unseat Nancy Pelosi because I think her inaction and her ineptitude to recycle those words, they it's really an emblem of the, the status quo politician. And it's not to say it's a left or right issue. It's, it's just an issue across the board. We need to see it doesn't it's not an age thing either. We just need to see newer politicians, politicians with a new mindset, a mindset of getting things done. Doesn't mean they have to be outsiders, just means they have to have a true will for action. Uh, n not even in a populist way. It just has to be uh, politicians who truly desire to make change for the better. And if if that's a different better, that's something that we all need to swallow. But if your opponent is at least, not wallowing in the old quagmire of, of, of politics, the whole he said, she said, we haven't come to a deal in 200 days and then flip-flopping when it becomes your advantage. That can't be anymore, especially in the age of constant audits on the, you know, on social media and and through even the news it's it's difficult now more so than it was 60 years ago and a lot of these politicians had their idolized politicians that they you know were tutored under they were the politicians of the 40s 50s 60s and we have old people in political seats in in almost all of them and i think that that there will be a reckoning day once those people are replaced and once people realize that you have the power to replace them instead of just complaining on a daily basis that they can't do it and they you know they're not good enough they don't do their job it's because they don't need to they have no pressure and the minute you put the pressure on even if you don't get the right person in the person you were hoping for you can at least force them to change to bend to make sure that they actually do something they need to prove it to you that they want to hold their seat and that is the time that you realize, I mean, the minute we can we can all gather up and, and use our votes that we have been gifted, it's not like, it's just something we choose not to exercise. The minute we do, 
everything changes. And I'm sure a lot of people who are you know, turned off by politics, they find it incredibly boring or they just think it's frustrating because nothing ever gets done. The minute that everyone bands together and realizes that they can change stuff, things can change. And speaking of voting, we're going to move into some more statistics, updated statistics, things that could spell an interesting election ahead of us. I'm looking at a f particularly one state, the most difficult state to vote in, which should be, you know, the benchmark. It would be a good place to start when talking about voter accessibility and, and what the demographics may look like this year, especially, you know, given the pandemic and everything. It's, it's a good thing to analyze the lowest common denominator for what you... or the imagined statistical lowest common denominator. We're going to move on to Texas. Texas, of course, uh, notoriously difficult to vote in. As I previously mentioned, it's not just voter rights. It's, it's not just that. They truly, I mean, as many people know, the governor, Greg Abbott, uh, in a last Hail, Hail Mary to hold on to the state to keep it red, he ordered uh, most of the ballot drop boxes. I think it's one per county for ballot early ballot uh, drop boxes, which is just obscene. If you could imagine one ballot for all of Los Angeles County, that would be ridiculous. Mail-in voting wouldn't be possible. So, of course, in places like Houston, it's just as difficult, though that order had been rescinded and then argued over in the courts. But even with that said, we're looking at some fantastical numbers going into the 2020 election. Texas already has, I mean, based on who has already voted. We can say this for certain. They are almost certainly going to breach record turnout. They have 6.4 million votes, which is 37.6% of all registered voters in Texas. And that's insane because, of course, not every registered voter votes and especially not early voting. And with these numbers in mind, within 11 days of early voting, we've already reached 79% of the state's total back in 2016. And we still have six more days to go, including, of course, election day, where we expect a large, much larger proportion of votes to be cast. Now, here's the one discrepancy. We do not know, and of course, given the pandemic, this may make sense. We do not know how many people have decided to forego voting on election day and instead voting through mail-in. That, that remains to be seen, and it could be true, it could be false, there could be small discrepancies, but for the large, you know, on the whole, it looks like we have more votes coming in in 2020 than we did in 2016, which is to be expected. Given the polarized nature of the whole election, of course, in 2020 being the year of chaos, I'm sure a lot of people who haven't voted or have not regularly voted will be voting, and for both sides, for the record. Uh, with that said, the youth vote has been up 11%, and female vote has been up roughly 6%. Uh, both of which tend to lean Democratic, which could spell bad news for Republicans, especially these statistics, of course, coming from Texas. That could spell real danger for Texas. Texas, of course, if it goes blue, the election's called and over. Texas goes for Biden, and it, it doesn't matter what swing states Donald Trump does or doesn't win. The whole, the whole race is called. So it looks like it will be difficult for Donald Trump. Of course, not impossible, because... While we have these record high turnouts, and, and while that generally signifies Democratic turnout, that, that is not the case. Because, of course, we had an, a, a debate recently, and of course, the exposure is immense. We're looking at lots of people tuning in, and we're, we'll talk more about this later, but the more people who turn in and watch both of them commit their cases, there could be some people moving to Trump. A lot of people seem to not realize that in a lot of states, and, and it's easy to be blindsided by your own 
thought bubble, the bubble with your friends, your echo chamber, it's really easy to think that you are right all of the time, or not even that, but your perceptions are right all the time. Just because you find something offensive does not mean everybody does. When Donald Trump goes out there and he claims that Joe Biden is a socialist, or when Joe Biden goes out there and claims that he stands for the centrists of America, who knows how other people will interpret those? You and I may have very set ideas of what they mean by that, and we may have very set ideals that would fall in line with one or the other, but that's not the case with everybody. Independents, the most important electorate group, they change their votes, and quite frankly, they can be maybe not easily swayed, but every voter is unique. Everyone gets one vote, and importantly, that vote is only tied to you. You feel that the candidate must earn your vote. And just because you believe very strongly about Joe Biden or you feel very strongly about Trump does not mean everybody feels that way. There are plenty of people out there who, quite frankly, don't they're, they're not, you know, entirely turned off by Donald Trump's demeanor of, of a strong man. And they don't find Joe Biden's socialist leanings that bad. I think there's a lot of nuance that goes into these these pitches. And I think a lot of people, though they, you know, it's red or blue, a lot of people are going to go in there to that voting booth and they're going to have to think. They may like one thing about one presidential candidate and one about another. And they may say, you know what, I don't like either of them. Howie Hawkins just deserved my vote. Of course, that doesn't benefit anybody. And I don't I don't buy the idea that voting third party is ruining anybody's chances at an election, because if you're a voter who's likely to walk in and vote for a party, be it libertarian or cons uh, the Green Party, the two most prominent independent third parties, um, I, I don't believe just because you may lean, of course, a Green Party, uh, you would affiliate more with Democrats and the libertarians more with the Republicans. It doesn't mean that your vote for either of those parties would have gone to that one. I, I, I'm sure there are people out there, and this is, of course, the, the, the quote-unquote issue with American democracy, is that there are people out there who would like to vote Democrat, Libertarian, Green, Republican. They, they may feel that way. They may be a libertarian-leaning liberal, and that may be their view. There are people, I'm sure, who care about climate change, but they just can't stomach abortion, so they vote Republican, and then they would vote Green Party, and then they'd vote Libertarian, then they'd vote Democrat. It's, it's easy to see that, yes, there's nuance to these things, but there is no way to go about in, in expressing those. And so the final cast of the ballot is not always indicative of how they, you know, wouldn't, what would entirely encompass them. And I think that's important to remember. There's a lot of nuance. The people voting are not just blue and red. They're people with ideas and they have ideas that can be shared. And those is often worthwhile to listen to because you may realize that you align more with one of the other parties. And I think it's important, and especially in the duopoly that we live in in America with Democrats and Republicans, it's important to remember that we have more options. Just because we choose not to access them doesn't mean they're not there. And again, while it's fantastical to, you know, fantasize about, and it would never happen, if every American voted on conscious, we, we would have many, many, many parties. And no, it could never happen, at least with the apparatus we have now in government. One day it might, if we could institute something that isn't first past the vote, uh, post voting, something like ranked choice voting, or at least uh, having more equalized uh, federal election debates. Maybe we would have uh, Howie Hawkins and Joe Georgeson on those podiums with Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And I think that would do wonders. And the last time that happened, of course, being somewhere around the 1970s, I believe, you could see 
more than just the Democrats and Republicans, at least represented in the House. It doesn't mean they'd win the federal branch or the executive branch, rather. But we could see legislative. We could see more people like Bernie Sanders or Justin Amash. And I think that's what democracy needs if we're going to continue to not just polarize each situation and continuously be at each other's throats in this this awful 2020 reality. Now, with all of that said, and all, you know, 48 million, nearly 50 million votes already cast as of this recording, let's move on to, of course, the largest news headline, the biggest important, most important uh, reveal this this last week. And of course, that's Borat too. No, I'm kidding. It's the final debate. Of course, it was a moderated debate, and this time we had the mute button. Someone someone took notes from Zoom, and it was it was honestly far and away by the best debate. Because even though it had reduced viewership than the first, of course, the second being skipped due to Trump, um, with lesser viewership, there's still 55 million people watching, which is a large, I mean, that's a huge audience. That's a good portion of the voting population. With that all said, what happened? Um, it was, like I said earlier, mentioned earlier briefly, it was more substantive and it was the least chaotic. The mute button worked. The threat of the mute button anyways, because Donald Trump and Joe Biden, Trump, of course, being the more eccentric of the two, was reined in. He reined him himself because I'm sure his aides and, and all of his coaches told him that if he got muted on that, I mean, it, it's a horrible look to have. It, it doesn't look good when you can be forcibly shut down by the moderator for running over the rules. So he he did what was the best option on the table and he just restrained himself. He made the case that he needed to make, you know, walking into 2020 with a little bit less favorable in the polls. And I think he did a good job. Joe Biden was had a very strong opener. He he was definitely softer and looked a little bit less assured of himself later on in the night, but it was a pretty good debate overall for both of them, in my opinion. So we'll start off briefly just by talking over Trump's case and, and what, what he went as his, you know, what he was pointing to, what he was signaling to going into election, wanted he, what he wanted voters to remember as they walked into the booth. And they were pretty easy to keep track of. One, he brought up politics. He brought up politics that everybody hates because it's nasty and it's a quagmire that no one likes because nothing gets done. And Joe Biden's been a politician for 47 years. And my God, how could you vote for him? Well, it kind of worked. It was a decent pitch at any rate. I mean, this would have worked better in 2016 when he was a true outsider outsider. But now that he's kind of gotten himself in a little bit of trouble in the federal branch with some of his people going to jail and everything, it doesn't it doesn't hit quite as hard. That isn't to say it doesn't work as a messaging tool, and I think it works pretty well. It's not as... it. Quite honestly, it worked incredibly well against Hillary Clinton. That's why she lost, is because she was the embodiment of the political, you know, soup. The, the, the absolutely, you know, nothing gets done. You get sucked in the swamp. That's where you stay forever. The tar pits. That, that was Hillary Clinton, and it, it sold really well. And it didn't work at least in my opinion, quite as well against Joe Biden, because Joe Biden is Joe Biden. He's he's quite frankly a little goofy and he's a strange guy. And I think that plays well into the I'm a normal person aspect of his political career versus, you know, the hardworking Scranton raised that that's his pitch. And it worked. And so I think Trump's outsider, you know, look at me versus the politician. It doesn't work quite as well, though. That isn't to say it doesn't work at least to some degree still, because it, it quite honestly does. 
Um, he also talked about socialism. This, this again, being his other strong suit, he talked about socialism. And of course, I think anyone who understands the concept of socialism realizes Joe Biden is not a socialist and he has no socialist leanings. But the people he associates with, they do. Um, and that's that's not to insult him in any way, but rather it's a great it's a great thing for Trump, politically speaking, to call attention to. Because when Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders went together to have a joint planning session for their, uh, you know, some of Joe Biden's, he, he wanted, basically, Bernie Sanders wanted the concessions, of course, and that's well understood. But when they went in to plan some certain things, it's easy, even just by sitting down with Bernie Sanders to plan some platform changes, that already paints him in, a, in you know, the, the sympathizer light. It makes him look like he's working with Bernie Sanders, or even worse, Bernie Sanders is controlling him from behind the scenes. And that that works really. That line of attack works really well because he's got Kamala Harris as a VP, and her in the primary, she was calling for Medicare for all, at least for a while, anyways. She was, you know, just after when the pandemic started, she was talking about. $2,000 a month payments to every family. And not to say that I personally disagree with these things, but obviously that's not who Joe Biden is campaigning as. If he was, then it wouldn't be a problem. But he's not. He's campaigning as the I'm Joe Biden. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but that's really, it, it works well. The attack works well because of who he associates with. Because Every Republican hears AOC and their blood pressure rises. Everyone thinks about, every Republican thinks about Bernie Sanders and they scream Cuba and, or Venezuela. And it's, that is an understandable comparison because people like Bernie Sanders, they are, they've embraced that label and that makes them who they are. But I do not see Joe Biden in that light. And I think a lot of people struggle to see Joe Biden in that light. So the best Trump can do is align, you know, forcibly align Joe Biden with those people and then say, hey, look at the socialists. And even though Joe Biden may not have outright socialist leanings, it does well to paint that picture. And I think it's, again, one of Trump's better cases that he's made, uh, especially during these debates, instead of just attacking Joe Biden, I think the personal attacks don't land because, quite frankly, it, it, he's Joe. And, and, in just a few seconds, we'll talk about that. But it, it, the attacks don't hurt. And when, when he brings up Hunter Biden, when they have these, quote, you know, the claims themselves, we can't refute them outright. But they're not substantiated to the point of being a, a truly important, is not a truly important messaging tool for Trump. I don't think it works on every American. I think it works on his base. His base freaks out over the Hunter Biden stuff. But I don't see independents or Democrats really caring. I think when it comes down to you know, at the end of the day, it's not Hunter Biden or Trump's, uh, any of Trump's family members. I don't think that it's going to be a problem when it, you go in to vote. You're not voting for those people. You're not voting for the kids. And I think you can liken someone to their family or in Hillary's case, her husband, and it works well as a character attack. That only works if that person is susceptible to those character attacks. And I don't think that Joe Biden really will be because going into 2020, everyone's thinking about actual policies. We're thinking about the people who haven't got a stimulus check for however many months and the people who don't have a job or the people that, you know, can't send their kids to school because COVID still hasn't been dealt with. And that's the problems that people are looking at in 2020. We're not looking at, ooh, I don't really like Hillary or, ooh, I really don't like Trump. It doesn't feel like that this time. It feels like I need to, you know, I need to put food on the, the t family table or 
my job, it, you know, they're, they're going to lay me off pretty soon if we can't go back to work. These are issues. And I think that's going to speak to voters a lot more than personal attacks will. And that's why I think Joe Biden's campaign strategy might be slightly superior. As for Joe Biden, I think the case is pretty simple. And as I've alluded to before, I think it's it's an understandable pitch that he's trying to make. He's he's trying to role play as Warren G. Harding and say, return to normalcy. We're going to fix everything like it was before. And I think that's going to be enough, quite frankly, because even though there are problems in the past, as for Joe Biden, I think it's a pretty simple case. And it's self-evident, really, in the way he carries himself. It, it's quintessential to his personality trait. He is Joe Biden. And I think everyone from eight years of the Obama presidency knows who Joe Biden is. That's his one advantage. They know exactly how he'll act. They know the pros. They know the cons. And I think everyone has come to understand that, at least form their own opinion of that. So it only works as well as as many people are willing to think about him fondly. But with all of that said, I think a return to normalcy Warren G. Harding style campaign that he's been running does a lot of good as of right now. It worked after World War One, and I think while you can hardly compare the two, the, the crisis of Corona to World War One, they're both upending society from the very root level, and I think they both have the same emotional impact because people remember when their kids went to school and they remember when they had their jobs and, you know, life was normal when no one was wearing masks. And I think everybody wants to return to that. And I think Joe Biden, by, you know, embracing that and saying there were faults of the past, but we got to go back before we can move forward is a lot better than Trump's everything is fine. You know, the room is burning type style of of leadership. His pitch is not quite as convincing, at least for the majority of Americans. So, yeah, Joe Biden's entire spiel is is a bit difficult to stomach if you didn't like what it was before. And I think that's what a lot of Republicans have in their minds. They think about 2008 and 2012, and they think about the devastating losses and the, the Obamacare being passed and the Democrat Senate and, and all of that. And I think, while yes, there were a lot of issues in the past, and there were, I have a lot of issues with the Obama presidency and most of the presidencies before that, I think it's pretty safe to say that the majority of Americans, at least certainly almost every Democrat and a good number of independents feel that way. And that's why I think it's not unlikely that Joe Biden will win the election based on this messaging and that messaging alone. It's not a matter of, of necessarily a matter of charismatic speaking. The man has a stutter for the Lord's sake. I mean, he's not he's not the number one public speaker, especially compared to Trump, who, while he rambles and he's a bit of a whatever he's he's very much charismatic in his own right and he is at the very least he is a comedian in his own right because he is entertaining to watch at some points and that's all you need for unfortunately a lot of americans there are a lot of people who think ha that man is funny i want him to be the president over the guy who i just don't find all that entertaining and while that seems a bit ridiculous of course this is America. It's, you, I, I can't believe that anyone would expect anything else, given the fact that most people, we still have people who won't wear masks and there are people who are still refusing to acknowledge the virus. So I, I would get over the stupidity and simply acknowledge that people have the right to vote how they want to vote. And that's perfectly fine with them. And if, if it's a protest vote, so be it. I mean, that's their right. And you, you, you do have to understand that that is their right. And you can't control them. That's the beauty of American democracy is because while you may not be able to control their vote, at least nobody can touch the sanctity of your vote. And that's what should really matter to you. 
another pitch he makes, and I think this one is another Rorschach test. It's a bit difficult to stomach for both sides, but Joe Biden has repeatedly claimed that he is the party. He wants to identify with the centrists, the Nancy Pelosi's, the, you know, Maxine Waters. He wants to be the very middle, the old guard Democrat, you know, nearly blue dog Democrat, though he's shifted his positions on crime and everything, but he wants to be the centrist. And while that's not popular for a lot of Democrats. I think most progressives can get behind anyone who isn't Donald Trump. And I think there's a good number of independents and, and even some Republicans, though I don't imagine droves of them, who will flip over to Biden just for that you know sense of, of calm and the promise of non-radical change is enticing. Because Republicans and, and independents can stomach the fact that, yeah, it'll be the opposing party's leadership in the executive branch for four years, but at least he's already promised not to do anything crazy. And while Donald Trump may be doing things in somewhat in the interest of the conservative right, the way he goes about things, he smashes everything in the room. And it's it may be difficult for some truly conservative Republicans to swallow. So I can see either abstaining from voting in this election for those that demographic or moving over to Biden if they, they truly do feel passionately about that. So Joe Biden's I am the party, um, his whole pitch as the centrist Democrat, it may work and it may not. But again, it's, it's like I said, it's a Rorschach test, which just means if you're going into something with one idea, it's going to be confirmed no matter what the idea is. If you're a Republican who feels strongly against Democrats and you hear someone say, I am the Democratic Party, well, there's no way you're going to vote for them. But if you're a Democrat and, and, and you hear, or rather, Joe Biden says, I want, you know, I am the party, I want to be the centrist, and that's what you view favorably, of course, you're going to feel that way. You're, you know, your own beliefs are being positively reinforced. So the pitch works only as well as it it is allowed to. And I think it's the safe bet. And I, I don't disagree with the messaging at all. I think it is the safe way to play the election, though we'll see how it goes. Of course, the the last angle he does like to play is the international angle. Because, of course, leaving the World Health Organization and, and breaking with the Paris Peace, or rather the Paris Climate Accords, it, that is obviously, while it isn't the most substantial thing in the world, it's not like the, the world's going to end tomorrow because of it, it does leave a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths who want to be, you know, a, a counter to China on the global stage. Because when we left the World Health or Organization, who took our place as the number one funder? China. And I can't imagine many people want more global uh, organizations to be run by our number one geopolitical enemy. So it, that's difficult to, to come to terms with for a lot of people. And again, I think it's sort of sort of like a Rorschach test where it doesn't matter what, what the actuality may be. It really just depends on how you feel going into it. But it, it looks bad. And it, it, I'm certainly I'm shocked that a lot of Republicans and, and people who are pro-intervention and pro- you know, playing the geopolitical chess with people's lives and a lot of money, which is something I'm very strongly opposed to, I'm surprised that they don't take a harsher stance on things like that. Because, yes, it's a cool political stunt for us to stop funding the World Health Organization, which we were doing excessively, but voluntarily. That that whole political stunt of breaking away doesn't benefit us incredibly, you know, in, in any real manner. 
And it hurts our future prospects in the international stage with people like China. And as Africa slowly gets consumed with Chinese, you know, patronage, and then, of course, they'll have to pay back those debts and loans and become closely tied with China. It's a bad look for us to just start abandoning free ground that we we honestly shouldn't. So it's a bad look. And I think Joe Biden, when he comes to pitch the we'll come back, we'll come back to the table, we'll start you know, putting our foot down against these things. That is a good look for him for the pro-interventionalists, which is, you know, of course, not a lot of left-leaning people, but it does it does align pretty well with the centrists and it does align with the conservatives. So that's some more bipartisan appeal that I can understand. And I think you need to pitch it correctly, which I'm not sure he is. I don't think he plays up the angle against China. I don't think many Democrats do play up the angle against China quite as much as they need to to win those conservative votes. But at least in spirit, he is making that claim and he is making that argument, which is, I think, an important one to touch on if you want to hope to reach that bipartisan appeal, especially in international politics. That's what you're looking for. That that will be the leader kind of thing, the holding of the mantle to help lead the other people. That is a, an appeal that I think works to the conservative right in America. And I'm surprised it isn't played up more by Joe Biden, especially considering the fact that Donald Trump has played down that. He has definitely gone for the, we'll take our troops home, that whole appeal. And I don't know if that works on quite as many Republicans as he thinks it does. Thank you for listening through to the end. We'd really appreciate it if you check us out at Aligning America on Instagram and Twitter. And if you really enjoyed it and want more content like this, be sure to head over to our Patreon to ensure we can keep putting out episodes, changing hearts and minds one podcast at a time. Thank you.